Okay. Hopefully we're going. Good morning. Today we continue our study in the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn with me to the 10th chapter of Romans? We're going to have a, a teeny bit of overlap with what we read last week. And by way of introduction, Romans is Paul's letter he has sent to the church in Rome, a church he has not personally been to yet, but he hopes to come to them soon. He intends actually to kind of base his further activities out of the church in Rome. He has this desire to preach in the western half of the empire, reaching even to Spain. It's always Paul's ambition to preach in new places, places where the gospel hasn't gone. But he's writing this letter to the churches in Rome, a church, well, a group of churches that is fractured by the history of of what's gone on in Rome. We've talked a little bit about how the Jews had actually been exiled from Rome and come back. And this caused this particular church in the city of Rome to be more deeply divided along Jewish and Gentile lines than almost any of the other churches we're familiar with in the New Testament, and also broken along class lines between the noble and the poor, between the free and the enslaved. And Paul's vehicle for telling all these people, for uniting these people, for bringing them together and healing the divisions among them is to tell the story of the gospel. And he's telling it in a very particular way in the book of Romans. He's telling it in a way to bring these sides together. We have no other book of the Bible that has as thorough an exposition of the gospel. And it amazes me because it's very clearly written to the churches, the church in Rome, the the different house churches. Yet most commentators seem to ignore the fact that it's written to Christians and has this long gospel presentation in it, which none of the others... None of the other letters of Paul really do. They'll, ha- they'll elucidate certain points to correct things, but nobody, nowhere does Paul really lay it out like this. And commentators have treated it kind of like, gee, aren't we lucky that Paul has this evangelistic message in the middle of this letter, so we have a, a full presentation of the gospel. But they kind of ignore the fact of its being in this letter, in this situation, and why Paul would why Paul would put it here and what he's attempting to do with it. And this chapter in particular is going to have some really dense interweaving of bringing both sides of the gospel together. And particularly, there's some language that points both, that's going to point both ways at once. Paul is this is an amazing letter and I, I, it's to my shame that I've shied away from it for a lot of my uh, time as a Christian, although maybe some of that's because I, I, I have sat through multi-year-long studies of the book of Romans where you pick individual verses apart and, and with very little attention paid to the context and purpose of the author. So that, that may have... Romans and, and Revelation were kind of my... Ah, those are those are in the Bible. Yes, I know. And you know, if they're the reading today, I'll read them. But uh, not where I would go if I was just personally picking up the Bible for light reading, kind of like 
Deuteronomy. I'm not, you know, not going to read the law just for, well, you know, I need a, need a word of inspiration. Let me, let me read about sheep farming according to God. You know, some, some things you reach for and some you don't. And to my shame, Romans has been one of those. But it is really well-written book, really well-constructed in ways that formerly used to pass over my head. And I'm sure there's still so much here that is still passing over my head, but at least this time through, some of it hit me in the face. And so I'm going to share that with you today. So if you'll join me in the book of Romans, chapter 10, we'll start at verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about this righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Jesus Christ, the word about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. Their voice has gone out into all the word, earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly said, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The word of the Lord. Last week we saw how Paul was deeply troubled over the state of the Israelites. He said, I could wish myself cut off from God. I could wish myself accursed if it would just bring them into the family. And then he laid out the history of God's working and how Israel had still not recognized the work that God was doing, that they in fact looked at the structure God was building and in fact tripped over it. Instead of seeing the work of God and glorifying him for it, they tripped over it. 
Here we're going to find out more concerning the purpose of Israel in the plan and calling of God. And he starts out by reiterating that that cry at the beginning of 9. He says, It's my heart's desire for the Israelites that they may be saved. Now the parts of Romans that we all are familiar with if we grew up in the evangelical tradition are what sometimes is called the Roman road, the things that seem to be speaking about what you need to do to be saved. Which throughout the history of of American evangelicalism becomes code for what you need to do to get your I'm going to heaven card. There's much more than that going on here. Salvation is a much more holistic concept. It does include that. Salvation is not unconcerned with your ultimate fate, but it has so many more dimensions to it. It has the dimension of being restored to what you were originally intended for, and it has the notion of being taken out of the broken state and made whole again. And that is Paul's desire both for individuals and for Israel. He says, I can testify about them that they are zealous for God. One of the prophecies about Jesus was that zeal for God's house would consume him. Here they're zealous. That should be a good thing. But their zeal isn't based on knowledge. It isn't based on understanding what's going on with God. It's based on what they think they know about what God is doing, but not, in fact, about what God is doing. And Paul, in this chapter, is going to talk about how God was always doing what he is going to do through Christ, what he did through Christ. It said, because they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they didn't submit to God's righteousness. Well, a few weeks back I had talked about this this kind of sticky concepts of justification and righteousness and faith and how you can't pull them apart. They all stick to each other. This is going to be one of those places. Because when it talks about the righteousness of God, people have tended to interpret that in terms of justification. The righteousness of God, it's God's righteousness that he gives to us so that we can be made right with God. People read it in terms of justification. But it's talking about the faithfulness of God. The righteousness of God is his plan that he has never abandoned despite our horrible track record. It's his right standing and faithfulness, his faithfulness to the promises he has made to us. And because God's people didn't understand that, they didn't understand that God was doing something for them that he would not abandon, they pursued it as if it was something that they had to achieve, as if it was God saying, well, if you want to get to me, here's the roadmap, it's up to you. They didn't understand that that is not the relationship God wanted, even though he had said again and again through the prophets that his relationship to them was like a mother, like a husband, that he wasn't abandoning them, that he desired rich relationship with them, and that was how he was going to work out his righteousness. But they didn't understand that. They thought it was like a roadmap. And he said, Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now, if you're a Jew, this is going to sound weird. 
because we've just said, well, they think it's kind of like a roadmap. Well, if you think it's like a roadmap, Jesus isn't going to make sense to you because you think it's a matter of filling all these steps. And Paul is saying, no, I sent you, I set you this pattern to point you towards the Messiah. And it is in the Messiah that all this comes true. It's not what you do. It's what I do. What I do through my son, who is, by the way, also me, uh, as we're going to find out farther in here. And then Paul is really concerned to show them that this is always the story of Israel. This is in the scriptures. And he says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. If you're pursuing the law as step-by-step instructions, as you're, if you're pursuing the law as the effort you do to clean yourself up, that's going to be your life. You're always going to be doing those things. You're always going to be trying harder. And it is going to be very hard when you go to sleep at the end of the day and put your head on your pillow to really feel good about that because very few people can finish a day and say, yep, I did everything right today. And those people that can lay their head on their pillow thinking, yes, I did everything right today, need a therapist. Because none of us, none of us, there is none righteous. No, not one. Paul already covered that. He says, but the righteousness that's by faith, that faithfulness of God, that righteousness, that right standing with God that comes through God's faithfulness, says, don't say in your heart, you know, who's going to go into heaven and bring this down? Or who's going to go into the depths and bring this back? Who's going to bring Christ up from the dead? Because God's already done that. You don't need to wonder by what effort somebody is going to ascend into heaven and bring this down. Paul is quoting and changing slightly a passage in Deuteronomy When God delivered Israel from Egypt, they had gone into Egypt as Abraham's family, that family that God had promised he would work through to bring redemption to everybody, and he brought them out a nation, and he was giving them the foundational teachings of what it was going to be like to be a nation that was going to carry God's teaching and God's presence and the message about God before the world. And the whole Pentateuch, once you get out of, once you get to the Exodus, is pretty much the account of them wandering around in the desert and getting taught. And when they're ready to go into the land he promised them, when they're being commissioned and set out, Moses is not going to go with them. But he sums up again what Deuteronomy is, means second law. He's summing up everything God has taught them. And he comes to this point in Deuteronomy and he says, listen, at some point, you're going to not keep this. Even though you're being commissioned and sent out as the people of God, even though God is giving you this right way to be, and if you, li- if you walk in this path, you will have blessing, even though we've given you all that, you're not going to keep it. And when that happens, just like the nations that are in this place ahead of you, you'll also be carried out of here, and you will be carried into exile. So that's that's going to happen. But... If, when you're carried into exile, you remember the teachings of God and you turn your heart back to God, God will renew you. God will do a change in you. He will put his word in your heart. He will do a circumcision of your heart. And that's what Paul is is drawing on here. And he's changing it slightly because in Deuteronomy, 
it does say who will ascend to bring the word of God down, but then it says, you know, who will cross the oceans kind of to bring the word back. Paul's adapting it here uh, to, to kind of lay emphasis on the resurrection, but everybody would know what, what he was appealing to. He said, you, you don't have to do that, but what does the law say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. This is no longer something you have to search for. This has come to you. It's dwelling in you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. Speak it. Believe it. Again, that's faith. And that faith there is pointing both ways. That is your faith in God. That is the faith in God that God has put in you. And that is the faithfulness of God from faith to first to last. But it's near you. Because of what Christ, Christ has done, it's no longer something you have to search for. It says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We love this verse. This is, this is a verse evangelicals love. But it's become so familiar that we do horrible things with it. I remember uh, some time ago, may have been in the last century, <laughs> don't, don't exactly remember when, but there was a period uh, when the internet was becoming much more popular and different services were, were coming to the internet and there were matchmaking services help you to help you find other people and connect kind of digital yentles, you know, if you remember Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and, and there were Christian versions of that because you don't want to meet an unbeliever. You want to meet, you don't want to be unevenly yoked. You want to meet somebody. And they had just these most tasteless ads on TV. And then they would just have a perky person say, Jesus is Lord at the end. And it was very clear they were using it as a cultural password. It's like, oh, yep, Jesus is Lord. You know, you will see in pop, in Christian pop culture, you would, people would greet each other that way. Jesus is Lord. And it, it became just a phrase. And unfortunately, it was kind of put into gospel presentations like it's a, a phrase. Like, yeah, you know, if you just say this formula, you know, if you believe the, the bare fact that Jesus is, is Lord and you believe God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. I'm pretty sure that the devil knows Jesus is Lord. I'm, I'm really sure he knows God raised him from the dead, even if at the time it was something of a surprise. It's like, hey, whoops, oh, okay. That doesn't mean it's saving. It's, it it's, has any efficacy for saving for him. Something else is going on there. Also, this isn't just an individual thing, although this is an individual thing. I never want to, in telling the story of God's faithfulness and working through Israel and the large groups, obscure the fact we're part of that group. This is great news for us because we all need that restored relationship with God because our lives are misery apart from him. They have no purpose. But Jesus as Lord means something, and it's, a very, very dynamic statement because it points a couple of ways. One, if you are in the Roman Empire and you say Jesus is Lord, 
That means Caesar isn't. That means by saying that, you're immediately a traitor to the empire. So if you're a, a pagan Roman and you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, you're going, guess what? There may come a conflict of interest sometime. And when that conflict of interest comes, it is not Caesar that holds my highest allegiance. That is still true today. If we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, that means Jesus is Lord. It means we're not. It means in the story of our lives, our ultimate determiner of our actions is not what we want. It is what does my Lord want. It means that we do things in the way he is established, in the way he calls us to. There's never part of our life that's not under the lordship of Christ. If you can say, yes, I trust Jesus for my salvation, but in my day-to-day life of how I'm going to live it and how I'm going to defend my rights, my property, some other thing is Lord, then Jesus isn't Lord. There's no partial king here. Jesus is Lord. So it has that dimension from it. It points that way. It points that way to secular power. But if you're a Jew and you hear Lord, you're going to be thinking of what that means in other places. Now, after Israel had gone into exile to Babylon and come back, there was a lot of history that passed between between Israel's return to the Holy Land and Jesus' coming. And one of the things that happened was this man named Alexander the Great came out of Europe, just north of Greece, and conquered what then was considered the world. He he got all the way to India. And uh, if his soldiers hadn't got tired and said, enough, you know, will you never be satisfied with conquest? And he's like, go home and tell your families you abandoned Alexander. did not take it well, but he conquered what was considered the known world. And with him, he brought Greek culture. And so kind of unified that known part of the world because now they had a common language and a common culture. One of the things that happened is good Hebrews who were no longer in Israel, who might be living anywhere within that now conquered world, some of them no longer spoke Hebrew or Aramaic even. They were in different places. They spoke Greek because that was now the language everybody did things in. And so the scriptures were translated into Greek. Now in the Old Testament, you have the name of God, which we translate as Yahweh, but it's just four Hebrew letters that was so holy you would never say it. So you would always substitute another word for it. In Hebrew, it's usually Adonai that you substitute in. But when the Bible is translated into Greek, they use the word kurios, which is Lord. So Lord was the title for God, the I Am. When you saw Lord in the Bible, you knew it was I Am. So if you're a Jew and you're seeing this, when you confess Jesus is Lord, you're not just saying he's king. You're saying he is the I Am. He is God. Not only is he... God, he is the specially revealed covenant God of Israel. Not just the general God of all creation, but in fact, Israel's covenant God. 
says, if you say that and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, saved from what? Saved from a lot of things. Safe in eternity. Safe from death. But also safe from being part of this futile system, this purposelessness, this ceaseless trying to be right with God. He'll be saved from all that says, because with your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Justified. We love that word. We, you know, come up with lots of little anecdotes to talk about what justification means. But in the context here, in the way Paul's been talking about it, it means you're part of the covenant people. It means you're now right with God in his covenant. So the way Israel thought they were going to be right with God, pursuing it through the law, oh, by the way, this is how you get there. And it's by faith in what God has done, by faith in his faithfulness. And you speak that out. And Paul is going to say, as scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. And he's quoting Joel there. And Joel talks about the day of the Lord, and in, in his case, it's this plague of locusts and darkness coming on the world. But he says that everybody that calls on the Lord will be saved. And that's both sides. That's Jews and Gentiles. So Paul's saying, see, this was always the way. Jew, to you Jews, by the way, Gentiles were always part of the plan. If you'll remember... God chose your father Abraham to bring this blessing to everybody. This was always part of the plan. Again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord be saved. And he's going to turn around. He's going to come back to the Jews. He says, but how can anybody call on the Lord if they don't believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've not heard about him? How can they hear about him with somebody, without somebody preaching to them? And how can anybody preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. By the way, you Gentiles, if you heard all this message about Israel falling short and started to think, well, you know, we're in on the real thing, you wouldn't know about any of this if it wasn't for Israel. You would not believe in God. You would not have a concept of what God is. You wouldn't have an understanding of God's, what God's trying to do if it wasn't for the nation of Israel. So as much as they fell short, as much as you can look at them and go, look at these guys, you know, God, while they're still talking to God, they're building a cow, you know, what, what's up with these guys? As flawed in every, in every way as they are, as we all are, they're still beautiful. Because God worked through them. And through them, God brought you to the knowledge of, of his son Jesus. You wouldn't understand the concept of Messiah if it wasn't for them. If they fell short in understanding it, they still brought that message to you. And then he goes on and he's coming back to his sorrow for Israel. But not all of the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, 
and the message is heard through the word about Jesus Christ. Just hearing what God's saying is not enough. You can read the story of Scripture, hear the commands, hear the story about God, but it's not enough. You hear it, you properly interpret it through Christ. The Bible tells us if you've seen Christ, you've seen God. The revelation in Christ is the word of the prophets made more sure. If it doesn't look like Christ, you're not properly understanding things. If you take a piece of scripture from any point in the Bible and you try and use it as a model for your life and you don't see it through the lens of Christ, it's a dead letter. It doesn't have the power in it. Paul says, but I ask you, did they not hear? Were the Israelites left out? They're the messengers. Were they left out? He said, no, the voice has gone out into all the earth and the words, words to the ends of the world. He said, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And, I, and Isaiah boldly said, I was found by those who did not seek me and I was revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Now he has just shown non-Israelites how important Israel was to them. That it was through them that they got the message that they could hear and understand. He's now going to roll the script backwards for the Israelites. He said, by the way, these people... God has a purpose, and we're going to find out more next week when we look in 11, but God has a purpose in choosing them. Just like Israel was to show God to the nations, the fact that when Israel stands back, the nations come in is God's way of actually preaching to the nation of Israel. He's going to show them, look, these people who weren't like you, they weren't searching me with their hearts, but as soon as the message came to them, they rushed in, they're a testimony to Israel. So he's going back and forth, showing both halves of the church how they're both part of a plan. Neither one is something falling short in the case of Israel. They're not somehow defective. Nor are Gentiles an afterthought. This was always the plan. Because God's plan of redemption was for everybody, both the Jew and the Gentile. And they need each other, and their history is interwoven, and it is a history of redemption because God was not content to let or let his creation suffer under the curse, but he worked a plan of redemption. This isn't a plan B. This isn't an afterthought. This was always what God was doing. Thing we see in here.